Hello everyone, welcome back to Nablo Storytime. What's this? Three episodes in three days? Who is this? Queen of Consistency? That's me. That's right. <laughs> I'm back again. Um, starting strong before Christmas and then I'll have a little bit of a break. Basically, I was in the mood to read and me being me, if that ever happens, I'm not going to fight it because as I keep saying, I don't like reading. And my aim is that by next year, I will be a bit more comfortable with reading like I used to be through this podcast. You know, that's one of the benefits of this. So let's see how that goes. I'm not trying to aim for those like um, reading lists, things that I read in 2020 or 2021 that people keep flexing on Instagram. No, man, I'm not interested. I just want to be more comfortable with even reading a page, a paragraph, without feeling like I'm going to die. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's just a simple request. That's all I'm asking for, for myself. Um, today, I wanted to read the second essay by Susan Sontag from the book Notes on Camp. If you did listen to my previous episode when I was reading Onyx Transcend, I mentioned how my first episode was Susan Sontag's Notes on Camp, but there were some technical difficulties and I had to kind of abandon that recording. I may get it back at some point because it was hilarious and honestly, I learned a lot through it, so I'd love to share what I learned with you guys. Um, but instead, I'm just going to read the second half of that book. So the book that I'm holding right now is A Penguin Modern, and it is two essays by Susan Sontag, and um, essentially I read the first essay in the other recording that is now lost, <laughs> and I think this time I'm just going to read the second one, which is also shorter, so that's great. One thing I took away from the other essay that I wrote is that Susan must have had some sort of ties to France, I said this in the Onyx um, podcast as well, because every third word was in French, more or less, and I was struggling, and there were so many big words, and... I know I'm going to be struggling again today. I already glossed over and I saw one big word. Like, what? what is this? Philistinism. Philistinism. What? What? We'll get there and um, cross that bridge when it comes. But, yeah, I'm excited to read this. Another thing, I mean, something I actually learnt from the last essay, I didn't say what I learnt yet, um, was some very interesting things on what camp actually means. The word sensibility was also thrown around a lot. Um, I also find it kind of ironic that Susan used a lot of very big, ostentatious words when she was writing, and she could have just used simple ones, like me, what I did just now, intentionally, may I add. Ostentatious. It's just an over-the-top word for the word over-the-top. And there were so many times where she used really over-the-top words, um, where she could have just said something simpler. But I understand. It looks nicer. It's more aesthetic to write that way. And one of the things she was saying about camp is to be over the top. So I'm not sure if it was intentional or not, but I think that she used a lot of over the top words and her writing in that way became camp. Um, so it's a bit ironic and actually I think that's quite playful. Anyway, enough rambling from me. Let's read the second essay, which I believe is about 20 pages long. So pray for me and let's hope we get through this. Okay. Starting from page 34. One culture and the new sensibility. In the last few years, there's been a good deal of discussion of a purported chasm. Chasm? Chasm. Chasm. Oh, wow. I thought we started off strong, but we didn't. Okay. Chasm. No. Chasm or chasm? I think it is chasm. What an idiot. <laughs> Who am I? Chasm. Um, which, oh, also, I'm just going to record this all in one go. I don't want any breaks. This is going to be completely real. 
any mistake I make, see, I just did it right now. Any mistake I make, you're gonna hear it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um. So, um, chasm, which opened up some two centuries ago, with the advent of the industrial revolution between two cultures, the literary, artistic, and the scientific. According to this diagnosis, any intelligent and articulate modern person is likely to inhabit one culture to the exclusion of the other. He will be concerned with different documents, different techniques, different problems. He will speak a different language. Most important, the type of effort required for the mastery of these two cultures will differ vastly. For the literary artistic culture is understood as a general culture. It is addressed to man insofar as he is man. It is culture, or rather, it promotes culture, in the sense of culture identified by Ortega Y. Gasset. Don't know who that is, but lovely name. That which a man has in his possession when he has forgotten everything that he has read. The scientific culture, in contrast, is a culture for specialists. It is founded on remembering and is set, in, set down in ways that require complete dedication of the effort to comprehend. While the literary artistic culture aims at internalization, ingestion in other words, cultivation, the scientific culture, aims at accumulation and externalization in complex instruments for problem solving and specific techniques for mastery. Whew. Okay, we're going to pause right there. Damn, okay, first of all, that was a very long paragraph, in my opinion. Big words already, big words, do you see what I mean? This wasn't even that bad, but read the first essay and you know why I was struggling last time. Um, what was I going to say? What time is it now? I was about to, like, have an early night. It's 9pm. I've been sleeping up for the past few nights. As I said last time, don't ask questions you're not prepared to know the answer to. I mean, it was nothing bad. I just keep getting up to work late at night. Um, but now here I am reading. What did you gain from that tangent? Probably not that much. But if you just want background noise, the more I talk is better, I guess. <laughs> but let us continue. Oh, T.S. Eliot. The Wasteland. Yay. Um, that wasn't from the book, obviously. That was me. <sighs> Though T.S. Eliot derived the chasm between two cultures from a period more remote in modern history, speaking in a famous essay of a dissociation of sensibility, which opened up in the 17th century, the connection of the problem with the Industrial Revolution seems well taken. There is, there is a historic antipathy on the part of many literary intellectuals the intellectuals, wow, the irony that I choked on the word intellectuals, I'm just trying to be one, <laughs> um, many literary intellectuals and artists to those changes which characterise modern society. Above all, industrialization and those of its effects which everyone has experienced, such as the proliferation, I got that so nicely, yay, I'm so proud, the proliferation of huge impersonal cities and the predominance of the anonymous style of urban life. It has mattered little whether industrialization, the creation of modern science, is seen on the 19th and early 20th, 20th century model, as noisy, smoky, artificial processes which defile nature and standardize culture, or on the newer model, the clean, automated technology that is coming into being in the second half of the 20th century. The judgment has been mostly the same. Literary men, feeling that the status of humanity itself was being challenged by the new science and the new technology, abhorred and deplored the change. But the literary men, whether one thinks of Emerson and Thoreau and Ruskin in the 19th century, 
or of 20th century intellectuals who talk of modern society and, oh, sorry, as being in some way new. Uh-huh. What? As being in some, oh, as being in some new way, <laughs> incomprehensible, alienated, are inevitably on the defensive. Oh, Susan really came for them like that. Oh. Um, they know that the scientific culture, the coming of the machine, cannot be stopped. The standard response to the problem of the two cultures and the issue long antedates, uh, by many decades, the crude and philistine... Philistine? I keep thinking Palestine, pronounced by a native. Philistine. 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 I need to look that up after. Okay. And Philistine's statement of the problem by C.P. Snow, in a famous lecture some years ago, has been a facile defence of the function of the arts in terms of a never-vague ideology of humanism, or a premature surrender of the function of the arts to science. By the second response, I am not referring to philistinism of scientists and those of their party among artists and philosophers, who dismiss the arts as imprecise, untrue, at best mere toys. I'm speaking of serious doubts which have arisen among those who are passionately engaged in the arts. The role of the individual art... Artist, artist, that's not even that hard. What, what? <sighs> the role of the individual artist, there you go, in the business of making unique objects for the purpose of giving pleasure and educating conscience and sensibility has repeatedly been called into question. Some literary intellectuals and artists have gone so far as to prophesy that, prof- isn't it prophesize? Prophecy, really? As to, pro- uh, I don't know, she knows best. Um, as to prophecy the ultimate demise of the art-making activity of man. Art in an automated scientific society would be unfunctional, useless. Pause. That is so true. So this was written, let me double-check again. Uh, mm, okay, well, the author passed away in 2004, but this was published in 1966, I think. Uh, wh- what? But the first selection was published in 2018. She wasn't even alive. That's weird. That is very weird. I don't know how I feel. Um, I just don't know what to believe anymore. I'm really confused. Uh, okay, I have no useful information to give you, but let's just say this was written in the past, and what she says definitely still stands today. If you did listen to my last episode, we talked about how the Conservative government of the UK released posters basically telling artists or people in the creative industry to retrain um, and basically go into something scientific, um, something like that. And I think what I just read now rings true of what we were speaking about yesterday because art um, outwardly doesn't have a function in capitalist society, I guess. Um, So it's of no value or it isn't valued as highly as perhaps it should be. And I think that's what she's talking about. And it's just funny that this was obviously not written in um, in today's world. But it definitely relates. Um, a bit eerie. But I guess maybe that's a timeless message. Which, if that's true, that's actually quite sad. But anyway, let's move on. But this conclusion, I should argue, is plainly unwarranted. Indeed, the whole issue seems to me crudely put. For the question of the two cultures assumes that science and technology are changing in motion while the arts are static, fulfilling some perennial generic human function, 
consolation, edification, diversion. Only on the basis of this false assumption would anyone reason that the arts might be in danger of becoming obsolete. Art does not progress in the sense that science and technology do, but the arts do develop and change. Very true, very true. For instance, in our own time, art is becoming increasingly the terrain of specialists. The most interesting and creative art of our time is not open to the generally educated. It demands special effort. It speaks a specialised language. The music of Milton Babbitt and Morton Feldman, the painting of Mark Rothko and Frank Stella, the dance of Merce Cunningham and James Waring, demand an education of sensibility whose difficulties and length of apprenticeship are at least comparable to the difficulties of mastering physics or engineering. Only the novel among the arts, at least in America, fails to provide similar examples. The parallel between the obtruseness of contemporary art and that of modern science is too obvious to be missed. Another likeness to the scientific culture is the history-mindedness of contemporary art. The most interesting works of contemporary art are full of references to the history of the medium. So far as they comment on past art, they demand a knowledge of at least the recent past. As Harold Rosenberg has pointed out, contemporary paintings are themselves acts of criticism as much as of creation. The point could be made as well of much recent work in films, music, the dance, poetry, and in Europe, literature. Again, a similarity with the style of science this time, with the accumulative aspect of science, can be discerned. The conflict between the two cultures is in fact an illusion, a temporary phenomenon. Hmm, that's a funny word, phenomenon. <laughs> I was doing so well, then I got distracted again. A temporary phenomenon, born of a period of profound and bewildering historical change. What are we wit- what? Oh, what we are witnessing is not so much a conflict of cultures as the creation of a new, potentially unitary kind of sensibility. This sensibility is rooted, as it must be, in our experience. Experiences which are new in the history of humanity, in extreme social and physical mobility, in the crowdedness of the human scene, both people and material commodities multiplying at a dizzying rate, in the availability of new sensations, such as speed, physical speed, as in airplane travel, speed of images, as in cinema, and in the pan-cultural perspective of the arts that is possible through the mass reproduction of art objects. What we are getting is not the demise of art, but a transformation of the function of art. Art which arose in human society as a magical religious opera, oh, opera, Pff, operation, my bad, my hand was covering the rest of that word, can you imagine? Um... <laughs> Uh, la, la, la. as a magical religious operation and passed over into a technique for depicting and commenting on secular reality has in our own time arrogated to itself a new function. Neither religious nor serving a secularised fr- religious function nor merely secular or profane, a notion which breaks down when its opposite, the religious or sacred, becomes obsolescent. Wow. She just uses beautiful words, doesn't she? Art today is a new kind of instrument, an instrument for modifying consciousness and organising new modes of sensibility. And the means for practising art have been radically extended. Indeed, in response to this new function, more felt than clearly articulated, artists had to become, have had to become self-conscious aestheticians, continually challenging their means, their materials and methods. 
Often, the conquest and exploitation of new materials and methods drawn from the world of non-art, for example, from industrial technology... No. <sighs> from industrial technology... You know what I'm noting the problem is? Sorry, this is... Obviously, this is my side note again. The words that I'm struggling with are always the ones that are continued over the next line. Like, they have the dash and then it continues. Why am I struggling with this? Who knows? Maybe the book needs to be bigger. This is like A6, A5? Mm, wait, the bigger the number, hold up, A4 is, oh my god, wait, A3 is huge, A4 is not as huge, so then A5 is smaller, A6 is even smaller, okay, so this is probably A6, <laughs> I'm sorry you had to hear my thought process, and maybe if the book was wider, thicker, then the words wouldn't cross over so much, I don't know. This is obviously just my problem, but let's go back to the reading. Where were we? Technology. <sighs> um, okay, let's just go back a bit. Um, for example, from industrial technology, from commercial processes and imagery, from purely private and subjective, fant <laughs> subjective fantasies and dreams seem to be the principal effort of many artists. Painters no longer feel themselves confined to canvas and paint, but employ hair, Photographs, wax, sand, bicycle, tyres, their own toothbrushes and socks. Musicians have reached beyond the sounds of the traditional instruments to use tampered instruments and, usually on tape, synthetic sounds and industrial noises. So she's talking about how the arts has expanded and developed over time and is less restricted and bound by traditional methods and materials. Did I summarise that beautifully? Yes, I did. I'm so proud. I'm so proud. Moving on, though. All kinds of conventionally accepted boundaries have thereby been challenged. Not just the one between the scientific and the literary artistic cultures, or the one between art and non-art, but also many established distinctions between, oh, sorry, within the world of culture itself. That between form and content, the frivolous and the serious, and a favourite of literary intellectuals, high and low culture. Oh my gosh, I haven't heard that in ages. The distinction between high and low, or mass or popular, culture is based partly on an evaluation of the difference between unique and mass-produced objects. In an era of mass technological reproduction, the work of serious artists, of the serious artist, had a special value simply because it was unique, because it bore his personal individual signature. The works of popular culture, and even films, were for a long time included in this category were seen as having little value because they were manufactured objects, bearing no individual stamp, group concoctions made for an undifferentiated audience. But in the light of contemporary practice in the arts, this distinction appears extremely shallow. Many of the serious works of art of recent decades have a decidedly impersonal character. The, works, the work of art is reserting its existence as object, even as manufactured or mass-produced object, drawing on the popular arts, rather than as individual personal expression. The exploration of the impersonal and transpersonal, <laughs> transpersonal in contemporary art is the new classicism, at least a reaction against what is understood as the romantic spirit dominates most of the interesting art of today. Today's art, with its insistence on coolness, its refusal of what it considers to be sentimentality, its spirit of exactness, 
its sense of research and problems, is closer to the spirit of science than of art in the old-fashioned sense. Often, the artist's work is, his, is only his idea, his concept. This is a familiar practice in architecture, of course, and one remembers that painters are in the Renaissance often left parts of their canvases to be worked out by students, and that in the flourishing period of the concerto, the cadenza at the end of the first movement was left to the inventiveness and discretion of the performing soloist. But similar practices have a different, more polemical meaning today. In the present post-romantic era of the arts, when painters such as Joseph Albers, Ellsworth Kelly and Andy Warhol assign portions of the work, say, the painting, in of the colours themselves, to a friend or the local gardener, when musicians such as, such as Stockhausen, Hausen? Stockhausen? Um, John Cage and Luigi Nono, Nono? Nono, I don't know, <laughs> that rhymes, okay, sorry, <laughs> um, invite collaboration from performers by leaving opportunities for random effects, switching around the order of the score and improvisations, they are changing the ground rules which most of us use to employ, huh? what? which most of us employ to recognise a work of art. I'm noticing there's a lot of times where I just get confused because I misread something, so I apologise for that. They are saying what art need not be, at least not necessarily. The primary feature of the new sensibility is that its model product is not the literary work. Above all, the novel. A new non-literary culture exists today, of whose very existence, not to mention significance, most literary intellectuals are entirely unaware. This new establishment includes certain painters, sculptors, architects, social planners, filmmakers, TV technicians, neurologists, neurologists, wow, why do I say that weird? Neurologists, musicians, electronics, engineers, dancers, philosophers, and sociologists. A few poets and prose writers can be included. Some of the basic texts for this new cultural alignment are to be found in the writings of... Yeah, how... She can't expect me to read that. Nietzsche. A very important person whose name I can't read, sorry. Wittgenstein, haven't heard that in a while. Antonin Artaud, C.S. Sherrington, Buckminster, Fuller, Marshall, McLuhan, John Cage. John Cage? Interesting. Andre Breton, Roland, this is a long list, okay. Roland Barthes, Claude Levi-Strauss, Siegfried Gideon, Norman O. Brown, and, whoa, okay, uh, Georgie... Capes. This is what I mean, Susan. You're obviously very well read. You're very cultured, but um, take it easy on the rest of us. <laughs> but can we continue? Those who worry about the gap between the two cultures, and this means virtually all literary intellectuals in England and America, take for granted a notion of culture which decidedly needs re-examining. It is the notion perhaps best expressed by Matthew Arnold, in which the central cultural act is making is the making of literature, which is itself understood as a criticism of culture. Simply ignorant of the vital and enthralling, so-called avant-garde, developments in other, in other arts, and blinded by their personal investment in the perpetuation of the older notion of culture, they continue to cling to literature as the model for creative statement. What gives literature its preeminence is its heavy burden on, of content, 
both reportage and moral judgment. This makes it possible for most English and American liter literary critics to use literary works mainly as texts or even pretexts for social and cultural diagnosis. Rather than concentrating on the properties of, say, a given novel or a play as an artwork, but the model arts of our time are actually those with much less content and a much cooler mode of moral judgment, like music, films, dance, architecture, painting, sculpture. The practice of these arts, all of which profusely, sorry, all of which draw profusely, naturally and without embarrassment, upon science and technology, are the locus of the new sensibility. Wow, I just feel like that's a cool sentence. The locus of the new sensibility. That's, that's cool. I like her. Susan, man, you're so cool, but we never had a chance to meet. That's kind of sad when I think about it. <sighs> the problem of the two cultures, in short, rests upon an uneducated, uncontemporary grasp of our present cultural situation. It arises from the ignorance of literary intellectuals and of scientists with a shallow knowledge of the arts, like the scientist novelist C.P. Snow himself, of a new culture and its emerging sensibility. In fact, there can be no divorce between science and technology, on one hand, and art on the other, any more than there can be a divorce between art and the other forms of social life. Works of art, psychological forms, and social forms all reflect each other and change with each other. But of course, most people are slow to come to terms with such things. Huh, <laughs> shade. Especially today, when the changes are occurring with an unprecedented rapidity. rapidity. Wow. Um, again, I really do wonder when this came out because there's a lot of things she says that I think are so relevant to today's world. Probably, like, just mm, a universal message, but it just feels very apparent to now because I was reading this and I was thinking of TikTok. Like, you know, things are very rapidly changing and TikTok and social media play a part in that. And what she was saying with, you know, psychological forms, social forms all reflecting each other, I agree, that's definitely true. But maybe we don't notice that um, on like a surface level because we are distracted with this rapid flow of art that we're always consuming and um, coming into contact with. But again, that's just my take. And if you want to let me know what your thoughts are whilst you're listening to all of this, feel free to leave in an audio or get in touch with me at Nablo on Instagram or social media in general. And let's continue... But where was I? <laughs> oh yeah, I flopped the word rapidity. Cool. So, Marshall McLuhan has described human history as a succession of acts of technological extension of human capacity, each of which works a radical change upon our environment and our ways of thinking, feeling and valuing. The tendency, he remarks, is to upgrade the old environment into art form. Thus nature became a vessel of aesthetic and spiritual values in the new industrial environment. While the new conditions are regarded as corrupt and degrading, typically it's only certain artists in a given era who have the resources and temerity to live in immediate contact with the environment of their age. That is why they may seem to be ahead of their time. More timid people prefer to accept the previous environment's values as the continuing, what? continuing reality of their time. Our natural bias is to accept the new gimmick, automation say, as a thing that can be accommodated in the old ethical order. I feel like that made a lot of sense, but I didn't really absorb that. If anybody else did, 
please translate. But I feel like I need to go back and read that again later on. Only in the terms of what McLuhan calls the old ethical order does the problem of the two cultures appear to be a genuine problem. It is not a problem for most of the creative artists of our time, among whom one could include a very few novelists, because most of these artists have broken, whether they know it or not, what with the Matthew Arnold notion of culture, finding it historically and humanly adolescent, no, sorry, obsolescent. Obsolescent. Wow, interesting. The Matthew Arnold notion of culture defines art as the crit criticisms of life. Ooh, wow. Art as the criticism of life. Art as the criticism of life. What's that even mean? Hmm, that's pretty deep. But that's quite negative as well. Like, does it really have to be criticism? Can it not also be celebration? I feel like something like art, especially art, actually, it's way too fluid to be restricted to one definition, to be tied down by one person's definition, and especially one definition that is so narrow. So I reject that. You're hearing it first. I reject your definition. Matthew Arnold, please don't come for me. <laughs> um... This being understood as the propounding of moral, social and political ideas. The new sensibility understands art as the extension of life. This being understood as the representation of new modes of vivacity. There is no necessary denial of the role of moral evaluation here. Only the skill has changed. It has become less gross and what it sacrifices in discursive explicitness, it gains in accuracy and subliminal power. For we are what we are able to see, hear, taste, smell, feel even more powerfully and profoundly than what, than we are what furniture of ideas we have stocked in our heads. Wow, what a cool way to say something. Guys, whoever's listening, we have furniture of ideas stocked in our heads. Our minds are warehouses for furniture of ideas. What a way to see things, wow. When I was little, I used to think of ideas as like being in a filing cabinet in your head, but now that I'm saying this out loud, I don't know why I'm saying this out loud. Um, <laughs> why am I saying this out loud? Let's continue. Where were we? Filing cabinet. Um, I mean, she didn't say that. Furniture. Yes, okay, cool. Of course, the proponents of the two cultures crisis continues to observe a desperate contrast between unintelligible, morally neutral science and technology on the one hand, and morally committed human skill art on the other. But matters are not that simple, and never were. A great work of art is never simply or even mainly, a vehicle of ideas or of moral sentiments. It is, first of all, an object modifying our conscious, consciousness and sensibility, changing the composition, however slightly, of the humus that nourishes all specific ideas and sentiments. Outraged humanists, please note. Ooh, she's addressing someone personally now. Who, who are these people? There is no need for alarm. A work of art does not cease being a moment in the conscience of mankind, when moral conscience, <laughs> conscience, conscience, isn't it weird how it's really conscience, but we don't say it like that. <sighs> when moral conscience is understood as only one of the functions of consciousness, sensations, feelings, the abstract forms and styles of sensibility count. It is to these that contemporary art addresses itself. The basic unit for contemporary art is not the idea, but the analysis of and extension of sensations. Or if it is an idea, it is about the form of sensibility. 
Rilke described the artist as someone who works toward an extension of the reins of the individual senses. McLuhan calls artists experts in sensory awareness. And the most interesting works of contemporary art, one can begin at least as far back as French symbolist, symbolist sorry, poetry, are adventures in sensation, new sensory mixes. Such art is, in principle, experimental. Not out of an elitist disdain for what is accessible to the majority, but pre- but, but, but no, okay. But precisely, there you go, in the sense that science is experimental. Such an art is also notably apolitical and undidactic, or rather infradidactic. What does that even mean? Huh. When Ortega Y. Gasset wrote his famous essay, The Dehumanization of Art, in the early 1920s, he ascribed the qualities of modern art, such as impersonality, the ban on pathos, hostility to the past, playfulness, willful stylization, absence of ethical and political commitment, to the spirit of youth, which he thought dominated our age. Wow, so he's an old man, basically. Um, there's an asterisk here, so I'm going to read that as well. Ortega remarks in this essay, Were art to redeem man, it could only do so by saving him from the seriousness of life and restoring him to an unexpected boyishness. Take from that what you will. In retrospect, it seems this dehumanisation did not signify the recovery of childlike innocence but was rather a very adult-knowing response. What other response than anguish followed by anaesthesia, and then by wit and the elevating of intelligence over sentiment, is possible as a response to the social disorder and mass atrocities of our time, and equally important for our sensibilities, but less often remarked on, to the unprecedented change in what rules our environment, from the intelligible and visible to that which is only, dif- only with difficulty intelligible. And is invisible. Art, which I have characterized as an instrument for modifying and educating sensibility and consciousness, now operates in an environment which cannot be grasped by the senses. I just want to check something. Okay, only a few pages left. I really have done it this time. Almost there, people. We're almost there. Buckminster. Oh, now there's a quote by somebody else. Okay, beautiful. Buckminster Fuller has written In World War One, Industry suddenly went from the visible to the invisible base, from the track to the trackless, from the wire to the wireless, from visible structuring to invisible structuring in alloys. The big thing about World War I is that man went off the sensorial spectrum forever as the prime criterion of accrediting innovations. All major advances, sing- oh? advances since World War I have been in the infra and the ultrasensorial frequencies of the electromagnetic spectrum. What is he on about? But, okay, okay, cool. Whew, all the important techn- technical affairs of man today are invisible. The old masters who were sensor No, come on, you, you've got to be kidding me. Okay, hold up. The old masters who were sensorialists... What is... No, it's okay, proceed. Have unleashed... A Pandora's box, okay, of non-sensorially controllable phenomena, which they had avoided accrediting up to that time. Suddenly they lost their true mastery, because from then on they didn't personally understand what was going on. If you don't understand, you cannot master. Since World War I, the old masters have been extinct. 
Okay, then. End of quote. But, of course, art remains permanently tied to the senses. Just as one not one cannot float colours in space, a painter needs some sort of surface like a canvas, however neutral and textureless. One cannot have a work of art that does not impunge... In, no, not impunge, I don't even know if that's a word. Impinge upon the human sensorium. But it is important to realise that human sensory awareness has not merely has not merely a biologic biology oh my bad okay hold up let's just do that again but it is important to realize that human sensory awareness has not merely a bio <laughs> I did it again no has not merely a biology there you go but a specific history each culture placing a premium on certain senses and inhibiting others the same is true for the range of primary human emotions here is where art among other things, enters, and why the interesting art of our time has such a feeling of anguish and crisis about it, however playful and abstract and ostensibly um, neutral morally it may appear. Western man may be said to have been undergoing a massive sensory anesthesia, a concomit- no, 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 a concomitant, why does that make me think of a caterpillar? A cocoon, that's why, okay. Um, a concomitant of the process that Max Weber calls bureaucratic rationalisation, at least since the Industrial Revolution, with modern art functioning as a kind of shock therapy for both confounding and enclosing our senses. One important consequence of the new sensibility, with its abandonment of the Matthew Arnold idea of culture, has already been alluded to. Namely, that the distinction between high and low culture seems less and less meaningful. For such a distinction, inseparable from the Matthew Arnold apparatus, simply does not make sense for a creative community of artists and scientists engaged in programming sensations, uninterested in art, as a species of moral journalism. Art has always been more than that anyway. Another way of characterising the present cultural situation in its most creative aspects would be to speak of a new attitude towards pleasure. In one sense, the new art and the new sensibility take a rather dim view of pleasure. The great contemporary French composer, Pierre Boulez, entitled an important essay of his 12 years ago, Against Hedonism in Music. The seriousness of modern art precludes pleasure in the familiar sense. The pleasure of a melody that one can hum after leaving the concert, concert hall, of characters in a novel or play, whom one can recognise, identify with and dissect in terms of realistic psychological motives, of a beautiful landscape or a dramatic moment represented on a canvas. If hedonism means sustaining the old ways in which we have found pleasure in art, the old sensory and psychic modalities, then the new art is anti-hedonistic. Having one sensorium challenged or stretched hurts. The new serious music hurts one's ears. The new painting does not graciously rewards one's sight. The new films and the few inter interesting new prose works do not go down easily. The commonest complaint about the films of Antonioni, uh, I think, okay, Antonioni, um, or the narratives of Beckett or Burroughs is that they are too hard to look at or to read. Are hard to look at or to read, yep. That they are boring, ouch, that's kind of mean. But the charge of boredom is really hypocritical. There is, in a sense, no such thing as boredom. Boredom is only another name for a certain species of frustration. Interesting. I guess that's kind of true, actually. 
But then, but then that's like deleting a whole word from the dictionary. Boredom is still a useful term, I think. You can be frustrated that you don't have something else to do. Is that really boredom, though? Um, if we're going to call boredom a kind of frustration, what are we frustrated at when we're bored? I feel like boredom is still a useful word. Um, hmm, I don't know. It kind of specifies this, uh, a particular situation. When you're bored, it's a little bit different to being frustrated, although they are interlinked. But I guess that's not very important right now. So let's just continue. Um, and the new languages, which the interesting art of our time speaks, are frustrating to the sensibilities of most educated people. But the purpose of art is always ultimately to give pleasure. Though our sensibilities may take time to catch up with the forms of pleasure that art in a given time may offer. And one can also say that Balancing the ostensible anti-hedonism of serious contemporary art, the modern sensibility is more involved with pleasure in this familiar sense than ever. Because the new sensibility demands less content in art and is more open to the pleasures of form and style. It is also less snobbish, less moralistic, in that it does not demand that pleasure in art necessarily be associated with edification. If art is understood as a form of discipline, of the feelings and a programming of sensations, then the feeling or sensation given off by a... Oh, she really had to ruin it for me. A Rorschenberg... Rorschenberg painting might be like that of a song by the Supremes. The brio and elegance of a... No, why did she do this to me? Oh, my God. The brio and elegance of... Bod Boticas, I think. The rise and fall of legs diamond or the singing style of Dion Warwick can be appreciated as a complex and pleasurable event. They are experienced without condensation. This last point seems to be seems to me worth underscoring, for it is important to understand that the affection which may many younger artists and intellectuals feel for the popular arts is not a new Philistinism, as has so often been charged, or a species of anti intellectualism <laughs> of anti-intellectualism of some awesome kind of abdication from culture. The fact that many of the most serious American painters, for example, are also fans of the new sound in popular music is not the result of the search for mere diversion or relaxation. It is not, say, it's not, say, the Schoenberg. It's not, okay, it's not like Schoenberg also playing tennis. It reflects a new, more open way of looking at the world, and at things in the world, our world. It does not mean the renunciation of all standards. There is plenty of stupid popular music, as well as inferior and pretentious avant-garde paintings, films and music. Very true. But that's also opinion, isn't it? The point is that there are new standards. New standards of beauty and style and taste. The new sensibility is defiantly pluralistic, it is dedicated both to the excruciating seriousness and to fun and wit and nostalgia. It is also extremely history-conscious, and the veracity of its enthusiasms, and of the supersession of these enthusiasms, is very high-speed and hectic. From the vantage point of this new sensibility, the beauty of a machine or of the solution to a math- mathematical problem... Oh, she lost me there. She had to throw in maths. No, no, let's not do that, Susan. Um, of a painting by Jasper Johns, of a film by Jean-Luc Godard, and the personalities and musics of Beatles is equally accessible. 
and that is it we have finished that's actually quite satisfying i finished a book wow even though it was small I finished a book good for me and good for you for joining me let me know what you thought of that um being a listener rather than the person reading perhaps you were able to absorb more being on that end i mean um as i did say the previous essay was slightly longer and also very interesting i learned a lot from it but there were even bigger words so just imagine now you know how much i was struggling just imagine (laughs) um i enjoyed this i hope you did too hope you had a good day and if you were listening to this at the end of your day i hope you go to sleep now just get some rest you know i was gonna post this tomorrow and be like you know merry christmas in advance but let's just put this up today and when you do listen to this at some point it probably won't even be christmas it'll probably be new year's actually who knows really um i'm gonna stop talking and as i said before have a great day um follow the podcast i think that's something you can do follow me on instagram and youtube if you want to at nablo and youtube good luck naps bye